Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 62, Mozambique the Heretic. Dear listeners, due to the recent and hugely unexpected passing of the Duke of Edinburgh at the age of 99, this episode of Retrospecticus, episode 62, Mozambique the Heretic, has been delayed. In its place, we present to you two hours of sycophantic toadying, as we establish just how much we love our country, its wonderful establishment, and its indefatigable flag-shagging. The man who we would come to know as Prince Philip, a very bastion of Britishness, was born on a dining table on the wonderfully British island of Corfu, Greece, and given the wonderfully British name Philippos, Prince of Greece and Denmark. Forced to flee his country of birth in a cot made from a fruit box, his father, Prince Andrew of Schweiswig-Holstein-Sonderburg-Glucksburg, and his mother, Princess Alice of Battenberg, began a new life in England. During the Second World War, Prince Philip joined the Royal Navy, fighting against his Nazi brothers-in-law. He was mentioned in dispatches for his noble and heroic command of his ship's searchlights. In 1939, Philip first met his future wife and third cousin, Princess Elizabeth, when she was 13. Despite the obstacles of distance, class, upbringing, mild incest and nonsery, their love bloomed. Fearing a lawsuit from the bakery department of Marks and Spencer, the Battenbergs changed their name to Mount Batten in 1947, where their new, beautiful British name and place Philip asked the King of England for his daughter's hand in marriage. In doing so, Philip sacrificed his career in the Navy for an arduous life of service to the British Crown. His many and exalted duties included standing up, walking around, speaking once in a while, and courageously sitting down. And of course, enduring the royal variety performance on a yearly basis. Of course, Philip's lasting legacy was his contribution to race relations. In 1986, he heroically and courageously told a group of British students in China that if they stayed there much longer, they would go home with slitty eyes. In 1998, he daringly asked a British student who had visited Papua New Guinea if he had managed not to be eaten. And of course, while on a visit to Australia in 2002, he bravely and courageously asked an Aboriginal leader if they still threw spears at each other. The Duke's wisdom and intellect knew no bounds and we will dedicate the next eight hours to them. Right, okay, okay, back to normal. Look, it's sad when anyone dies, RIP and all that, but the coverage of Prince Philip's death has been exhausting, though. I mean, cancelling the MasterChef final, now that's too much. But seriously, in the UK alone, 130,000 plus people have died of coronavirus, and we have to stop everything for several days because Prince Philip dies? It's kind of ludicrous. Still, goodbye, England's Rose, the Prince of Edinburgh of our hearts. Right then, back to normal. Hey, hey, listeners. I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons of modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Wear short shorts when we wear short shorts. Enjoy an interview with Lord Michaels when we enjoy an interview with Lord Michaels. Wait, that's no good. 
And today I'll be talking about Season 4, Episode 3, Homer the Heretic, which first aired on October the 8th, 1992. And this week I'm in Mozambique, because on October the 4th, 1992, four days before Homer the Heretic first aired, the two sides of Mozambique's civil war signed a peace treaty, bringing the conflict for over a million people perished in to an end. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore Retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. Just a little word on Simpsons memes. You may have noticed a European Super League was formed this week. Uh, and then, just as quickly, deformed. I advise you to check out all of the Simpsons memes around that, because let me tell you, it was a gold mine. It certainly was. I mean, we've had some Twitter news. So you may remember the Simpsons producer, Jay Kogan, a while ago put out a question saying, anyone have any Simpsons questions for the first couple of seasons of the show? It was a long time ago, but I'll answer what I can. And on the 26th of November 2019, we asked, is John Schwarzwelder a real person or is he an elaborate conspiracy theory created by the other writers to hide their libertarian tendencies behind? And on the 19th of April, 2021, <laughs> Jake Hogan replied, he's real. Unfortunately, he didn't attach a please forgive the lateness of my reply. <laughs> or uh, I'm guessing any actual proof of John Schwarzwelder's existence. No, no, I am. I'm clinging to the ridiculous conspiracy theory that, that John Schwarzwelder is a Invention of the other Simpsons writers and that he's not a real person, because why not? Yes, and also because I, I'd have to cut 20% of my material if he uh, turned out to be true. So, you know, <laughs> let's flog that dead horse while we can. But let's return to October the 8th, 1992 for now, because, but Gareth, I hear you cry. What was the number one that week? Well, actually, we have Ebenezer Good at number one and It's My Life at number two again. So we're down to number three. Tasman Archer with Sleeping Satellite. Tune. To anyone of a certain age who watched alternative comedy on Channel 4, it's impossible to say Tasman Archer without wanting to add Badger to the end. <laughs> the problem we also have with the current manager of the England men's team, Gareth Southgate. Tom, please remove that last part if he gets sacked during editing. <laughs> Tasman blasted into the charts from nowhere, this being her debut single. And you know what? It's a cracking song, albeit one in a genre I'm not the slightest bit interested in. It's got hooks, it's got a good lyric, a singable chorus, it's well-produced. Yeah, what can you say, really? Good pop is good pop. It's going to go to number one in the UK, I forget exactly when, but sometime in the next few weeks after this. Uh, and will also hit the top in Ireland, Greece and Israel. My assumption at the time was that we'd hear a lot more from her, especially after she won the 1993 Brit Award for Best British Breakthrough Act. But the next couple of singles performed less well, and there was no follow-up album until 1996. Four years is a long time in pop, and she had been largely forgotten at that point, which is a bit of a shame, as she's a good enough singer-songwriter, but that's entertainment for you, I guess. Can I just add a line whilst it's in my head? Yes. But wait, if you're here, who's preparing the badges for the Badger Parade? <laughs> you better get down that grooming bay, Tom. <laughs> 
The US viewership for this episode was a Nielsen of 12.0, approximately 11.2 million households. It was 26th for the week and second on Fox to Married with Children. The production number of this episode is 9F01, which means we officially welcome the new animators, Film Roman, to proceedings. Starting their life as animators for Garfield television specials, they were also doing the Garfield and Friends series, and something called Bobby's World, which I just assume involves Garfield in some way, shape or form. When the Simpsons production team had their disagreements with Klasky Supo and decided to shift the work over. They apparently had trouble adapting to the schedule for the Simpsons, but clearly swam rather than sinking. Film Roman went on to animate King of the Hill, Family Guy and everyone's favourite, The Mask, the animated series. The credited writer for this episode is George Meyer. As we discussed in episode 11, The Crepes of Lothar de Mezier. And the chalkboard gag is, I will not defame New Orleans. There's a story here which I alluded to last time out, and yes, they did put this in at very short notice after offending said city with a streetcar named Marge last time out. Al Jean said, We didn't realise people would get so mad. Which, if you remember me talking about their spat with Brazil not long ago, you will recognise as a repeatedly heard excuse from the production team. <laughs> And went on to state, it was the best apology we could come up with in eight words or less. The couch gag is the wall revolving, leaving an empty couch and dooming the Simpsons to an uncertain fate. But what actually happens in the episode? Well, the Simpsons are going to the womb, where it is another beautiful lazy day before Homer is torn free of it. But it was all a dream. And worse than that, it's time for church in a snowstorm so severe that a polar bear is raiding the bins. When his stupid, itchy church pads tear, Homer draws the line and refuses to go to church. Shock horror. Although, given I'm from a non-church-going household, it did take me a few more minutes to work out what the big deal was the first time I watched this. Marge and the kids go as scheduled, and Homer is portrayed as resting, which Bart takes to mean hungover or fired. But no! He is merely a big toasty cinnamon bun, soon to discover the joys of open door whizzing, a warm shower and liberal use of the word ass. Meanwhile, at church, the furnace is broken, Maggie's milk is frozen and the reverend has opted for the long version of the Lamentations of Jeremiah. I assume that's the 12 inch mix and has a largely irrelevant instrumental breakdown at the four minute mark. But things just get better for Homer as he gets the chance to make his patented space age out of this world moon waffles tom it's a predictable quiz this week what are the ingredients of moon waffles caramel waffle batter liquid smoke absolutely uh he then wraps a whole stick of butter in his creation uh, <laughs> and assumedly the recipe involves a trip to the repair shop for the stricken waffle iron mmm fattening Meanwhile, hell seems attractive to a cold addled Bart, and when the service finally ends, the church door is found to be frozen shut. Homer's day peaks, and not long after Johnny Calhoun's gonna get me a genie with a magic bikini, another off-screen happening I'd like to have witnessed, is played on KBBL, and Homer wins their phoning contest, being one of presumably few owners of his follow-up spoken word album of his right-wing political views, These Things I Believe. But even better than that win is a Three Stooges film. <laughs> Mo is their leader. And the cancellation of Municipal Roundtable to show a football game instead. So when Homer finds a penny on the ground, his wedding day and the day when he apparently found a crashed beer truck are both trumped. 
and having had the best day ever, he vows never to return to church. Marge is predictably displeased, but Homer argues on three grounds. God is omnipotent. God has bigger things to worry about than Homer. And perhaps my favourite, what if they've chosen the wrong religion? That night, God comes to him in a dream, initially to show him the error of forsaking the church. But Homer wins him over surprisingly easily. God even agrees to give Reverend Lovejoy a canker sore before leaving to appear in a tortilla in Mexico. If anything, his experiences of not going to church make Homer a calmer, godlier person. A friend to all animals, except when they tried to shower with him. With a grace and calm that eluded him during his years of faith. Not even Lovejoy can dissuade him, with the reverence quoting of Matthew 7.26, the foolish man who built his house on sand, countered by Homer's invocation of Matthew 21.17. And he left them and went out of the city into Bethany, and he lodged there. Think about it. Homer gets a day off work by inventing a religious holiday, the Feast of Maximum Occupancy, which I myself officially celebrate on December the 27th each year because I'm not working with the size of hangover I will have given myself the day before. He offers Mo entry to his religion, but the landlord is a devoted snake handler. And Flanders singing isn't solving anything, leading to an action-packed car chase. And then, as if things couldn't get any better, we get itchy and scratchy. In Flamey to the Moon... Scratchy reads about a moon mission launching that day, and thanks to Itchy, he has his tongue tied to the rocket, leading the moon to be pulled to Earth, crushing him to death, despite him hiding in a cupboard. When Homer skips church on a Sunday again to read Play Dude, ignore Jewish clowns, and fall asleep smoking a cigar after offering Arpu's god a peanut, wait a minute, fall asleep smoking a cigar? The house promptly catches fire exacerbated by an explosion caused by a box of oily rags and another box of blasting caps, which are inexplicably stored next to each other in the Simpsons' basement. When Santa's little helper only succeeds in saving some chocolate from Homer's pocket, it's time for the volunteer fire department to swing into action, once those ducklings finish crossing the road, anyway. It's left to Flanders to stage the big rescue, featuring one of the greatest pratfalls in comedy history, as Homer is thrown onto a mattress on the lawn that catapults him back into the burning building. The interfaith fire team, and a little miracle protecting Flanders' house, convince Homer that he should return to church, and he does so the next week, promptly falling asleep. What an episode, Tom. What an episode. Love that one. Even if I didn't really get what all the fuss was about with him not going to church uh, in the first place, I think the episode does a good uh, a good job of telling me why that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I've always thought that this one was the first like proper, amazing, brilliant, classic Simpsons episode, and it's explained by the change in the animators, really. Because everything is so much smoother, everything's much more detailed, a lot less clunky, yeah, and and it's just packed with with jokes. Everything hits, yeah, it's just great. We are a million miles away from that that trudge we had through season one at this stage. It, it's mm-hmm. just just fantastic. You love to see it, as they say. So, have I got a character debut for you? It's only God. <laughs> God, voiced by Harry Shearer here, but also voiced by Phil Hartman in another appearance, is depicted as having five fingers on each hand, or four fingers and a thumb if you want to split hairs. This is opposed to the four, or rather three and a thumb, 
that is standard in Simpsons character design. That is entirely intentional. So it's a real shame that in the last scene of this particular episode, the character was actually drawn with the Simpsons normal four appendages. That was actually an animation mistake. God will generally be depicted as quite tired and overworked and bitter at humanity for their treatment of his son. Although, as seen here, he is not without sympathy and understanding for Homer's plight. Essentially, that of a working man just needing the odd bit of nice time to keep life feeling less like a pointless trudge towards the grave. God will be back almost immediately in Season 4, Episode 9. It's Mr. Plough, Tom! We're going to get to do (laughs) Mr. Plough, and it's really soon. Yes. And he will continue his conversation with Homer post-rapture in Season 16, Episode 19, Thank God It's Doomsday. Trivia question for you. What two things do God and Brett the Hitman Hart have in common? Well, I know that Brett the Hitman Hart makes an appearance when he buys Mr. Burns' house. Yes. I don't, know, I don't know if that's got anything to do with it. So that's um, one of the things. What 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 could the other one be? Ooh. They've both appeared in tortillas in Mexico. I don't know. <laughs> well, they may have done. I've not heard anything about a hitman uh, tortilla, but um, both have appeared on The Simpsons and both have wrestled in WWE. God? God was in a tag team match with Shawn Michaels against Vince and Shane McMahon at Backlash 2006. This is a true story, which I urge people to look up. I- I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> okay. So, did you know the scene where Homer dances to Short Shorts by the Royal Teens is a parody of a similar scene in the 1983 Tom Cruise film Risky Business? Although that is soundtracked by Old Time Rock and Roll by Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band. Someone at The Simpsons clearly wears Short Shorts, as that song is featured three more times in the show. In Season 8, Episode 9... Okay, let's give this a try... El viaje misterioso de nuestro Homer. Season 13, episode 6, She of Little Faith. And season 13, episode 8, Sweets and Sour Marge. So twice in two episodes, even. This is, this is such a go-to song for them. Hmm. And speaking of film references, some of the fire department's rescue of Homer references the 1991 Kurt Russell film Backdraft, which I remember being a big thing at the time, but you never really hear about anymore. The volunteer fire department includes Krusty and Apu, which is relevant as their religions had both been at least mildly berated by Homer in previous scenes, plus Chief Wiggum, Barney, Otto and Luan Van Houten. Jimi Hendrix is briefly seen playing air hockey with Benjamin Franklin and was meant to have a speaking part, which you can kind of see with the way that they cut that scene. But his line was cut at the last minute because nobody could do the voice. Franklin stayed in because no one could really know what he sounded like, so any voice would do. Unfortunately, Homer hasn't visited Hendrix's vet yet. That will happen in Season 7, Homer 24, Homer Palooza. So he was unable to pass on the message about Rover. Hmm. God did appear in the Tortilla in 1977. (laughs) Although it was not in Mexico, but in New Mexico, it was made by a Mexican family. The Tortilla was made from scratch for breakfast by Maria Morales Rubio. The God pattern was a burn mark made thereon by the skillet. And the Rubio family home became a pilgrimage site for the genuinely faithful. Plus, one would suspect, quite a few curious gawkers. And finally, 
the bit where God gets cut off as he was about to reveal the meaning of life was intended by the makers to run into an advert for the next show on Fox, thus making it look like the network had caused the interruption. Hmm. But they didn't actually bother telling the network that, so we just cut straight to credits, which with hindsight has actually future-proofed the joke. Tom, you did warn me. There's quite a few memeable moments this time. There certainly are. Now, I've gone for 13, and I think that's an underestimate. I think you could argue that there's more than that. So the very first thing, another beautiful day in the womb, that's definitely a meme. Then you have the rather risky one, which is Homer putting his pants on, you know, where he's struggling with with the trousers because they're too small and he's trying to do the zip. And when he's doing the zip, it looks, well, it looks like he's wanking, basically. And you can say that word in a family-friendly podcast because that word appears in The Simpsons. In season 14, episode 12, I'm spelling as fast as I can. And not only that, Tom, but I actually watched the very latest episode of The Simpsons, which is the uh, much currently talked about Smith's episode of The Simpsons. Mm. Uh, and that features the word wanker, I believe, three times. Yeah, well, there we are. Well, I think it's a, I think it's a cultural thing. It's basically the word wank in the UK has a very specific meaning. But in America, they don't really understand it. It's just a sort of general British insult, I think. Anyway, anyway. I better carry on. I'm only on number two. Third, the legend, the behemoth. Ah, I'm just a big toasty cinnamon bun. This, for some reason, has really captured people's imaginations. So I've made a few of my own with this. Um, I've gone for I'm just a big toasty cinnamon brum and replaced Homer with brum, the little little car (laughs) thing from the 1990s. Fantastic. I put that on a Facebook group and everyone went, oh, my God, Brum, I haven't seen Brum for decades. I said, yes, Brum is a thing. There's also a period where people would blank out the letters of big, toasty cinnamon buns. So it said other things. I cheated a little bit and put J.K. Rowling's head on Holmes' face and made her say, I'm just a big turf, which I think was appreciated by all. Number four, we interrupt this public affairs program to bring you a football game. And Homer getting up and dancing to that. In the early days of the pandemic, Saturdays were a bit like that because for some reason they stopped doing regular TV and showed like a classic football match from the early 90s or something or, or a classic World Cup game or something like that. So, uh, yeah. Then you have one of my favourite little weird esoteric ones, which is Homer waving while he's asleep. So so his dream ends and he's lying there drooling a little and he's and he's waving. And people just... Whenever there's a footballer on on a pitch waving or something, they just cut to they just cut to that shot. So that was number five. Uh, then you got number six, and you remember Matthew twenty one seventeen. Then you've got number seven, the feast of maximum occupancy. Then you got number eight, which is my experience on Twitter, which is Homer going, "Boy, everyone is stupid except me." Then you have number nine, which is Flanders saving Homer. Then number ten which is Flanders telling Homer, heck, you'd have done the same for me. That scene's always struck me a bit weird, the way Flanders is sort of hovering above Homer when Homer's talking. That always looks really odd. Then you got number 11. What are these axes for? I don't know, chopping stuff. That's some nice chopping. 
Then number 12, any valuables in the house? Well, for Picasso, my collection of classic cars. Sorry, this policy only covers actual losses, not made up stuff. And finally, number 13, where the fire is finally out. Which work better, springy clothes, pins or the other kind? So there, there you are, a cornucopia of memeable moments. Practically half the episode, that. I'd like you say that that's that's just scratching the surface. There's even some deeper cuts you could you could have put in there. That's a, a admirable restraint shown there, I think. Mm. So that was a monolith of an episode. I, I, I you know, could not have been happier to have that in my in my life this week. <laughs> um, can the end of the civil war in Mozambique um, square up to that in terms of historical significance? Well, I'd like to think so. So, Mozambique. It's one of those rare countries I've not actually talked about before. So, uh, it's a country on the southeast coast of Africa. It's a former colony of Portugal. And it has a very interesting flag that includes an AK-47 with a bayonet attached on it. Now, when I talk about a country, I usually go over the political geography, and today will be no exception. However, here it's important, because how the countries around it changed massively affected the modern history of Mozambique. So Mozambique is this odd T-shape. Now, working from the south and along its western border, the countries that border Mozambique are as follows. In the south, you'll find its capital, Maputo, which is a stone's throw away from the border with South Africa and the small kingdom of Eswatini, formerly known as Swaziland, until a couple of years ago. Then it goes back to the border with South Africa, along the Kruger National Park, before you get to Zimbabwe. In the northwest corner of Mozambique, you find Zambia, then Malawi, and in the far north, Mozambique shares a border with Tanzania. In terms of history, the region played host to various Bantu-speaking people who migrated to the region from the 4th century BCE onwards. From around 900 CE, the Arabs got involved, setting up trading ports along the coast. In 1498, our old friends the Portuguese arrived. At the time, an island just off the coast was ruled by an Arab sultan called Musa bin Beek, so the Portuguese named it after him. In time, the whole region took the name. So Mozambique is a name that's Arabic in origin. Now, I talked about the Portuguese Empire extensively in episode 60, Camp Fernando Color de Mello. In a nutshell, the explorer Vasco da Gama found out how to get to India from Europe via the sea, avoiding the hostile land routes. Thanks to his efforts, Portugal dominated the Indian spice trade for decades. However, to maintain their fleet, they needed ports along the route. In fact, if you look at a map of the Portuguese empire, this intent is really obvious. So starting at Portugal, you'd sail down the coast of Africa and your first stop was Guinea. Then you carry on further down the coast and you get to Angola with its capital city of Luanda. Then you go round the Cape of Good Hope, round what would become South Africa, and get to the east coast. There, you could stop at Mozambique before continuing up the coast. Until 1698, Mombasa was under Portuguese rule, so you could have stopped there too. And, you know, Mombasa is now part of Kenya, so you know that gives you an idea of how far up the coast the Portuguese went. From there, you could sail across the Indian Ocean until you reached Goa, which the Portuguese controlled between 1510 and 1961. It was that late before Goa became a part of India. 
So the Portuguese invaded Mozambique in around 1500 and kicked out the Arab traders, establishing colonies on the island of Mozambique and the port city of Safala. In order to try and expand their influence, the Portuguese set up the Prazo system. The idea was that the Portuguese crown would lease areas of land to whoever wanted them for an annual fee. A tenant was required to live on the land, but apart from that, they could do what they liked. They were often defended by private armies of African slaves called Chikunda. Of course, being a European colony, slavery was rife, although the Portuguese weren't entirely to blame. The Arab traders had been carting slaves away for centuries, and Bantu tribes sold captive enemies into slavery. Over the course of the 19th century, companies such as the Mozambique Company were founded to exploit the area's natural resources and build up the economy. Anyone could invest in these companies, and the finances came from Britain, France, the USA, South Africa, you name it. Slavery was officially abolished by Portugal in 1869, but they found a way to continue forced labour through the Chibalo system. Under it, the Portuguese forced people to work by taxing them heavily, threatening them with violence if they inevitably could not pay. As the people couldn't pay, they were saddled with debt and had no choice but to work for nothing. This made the companies that employed these methods very profitable. It's good old Western capitalism running amok like it used to do a lot in the 19th century. So over the course of the century, Portugal pushed inland, defeating the Gaza Empire in 1895. The remaining inland tribes were defeated in 1902. The same year, the Portugal established a new capital, Lorenzo Marques. This was in the far south, a good way away from Mozambique Island. Located next to the South African state of the Transvaal, the city developed into a thriving port and cultural centre. By the 1950s, things were still looking very bad for your average Mozambican, but pretty rosy for white settlers. The state only provided education for whites, and the Chibalo system was still in force. Things especially looked good in the region for the racist South African apartheid government. They implemented the apartheid system in 1948, and they were surrounded by allies. To the northwest was Angola, another Portuguese colony. To the north was the Bechuana Land Protectorate, a protectorate set up by the British in 1885. Further east was Rhodesia, another British colony. Completing the lineup was Mozambique, once again a Portuguese colony. So if you're South Africa, you're sitting pretty because you've got your racist apartheid system and everywhere around you is ruled by Western powers. You're looking good. White minority rule was established in pretty much all of the countries that bordered South Africa, and that was just what the South Africans wanted. Then, freedom fighters rose up against the colonists in Angola in 1961, which I covered in episode 33, Angolan Civil War of the Simpsons. This was soon followed by the Mozambican War of Independence that started in 1964. The war was started by a group called Frelimo. Their name comes from the Portuguese acronym for Liberation Front of Mozambique. I won't embarrass myself by attempting the Portuguese pronunciation. Frelimo was founded in 1962 in Dar es Salaam, the capital of what was then Tanganyika, what is now Tanzania, just over the border from Mozambique. It was formed from the merger of the Mozambican African National Union, the National Democratic Union of Mozambique, and the National African Union of Independent Mozambique. 
Rather than telling each other to F off, the groups merged into Frelimo with Eduardo Mondlane as its first president. Mondlane was a professor of anthropology at Syracuse University in New York, and he gave up his position to lead Frelimo. In that sense, I kind of imagine him as Indiana Jones, really. An anthropology professor leading a group of freedom fighters. Anyway. Uh, do we know what his stance on snakes was? <laughs> I can't imagine he liked him. At the start of the war in 1964, Ferelimo used guerrilla tactics to fight against the Portuguese from their base in Dar es Salaam. To start with, they had around 7,000 fighters and used weapons such as AK-47s supplied by the Soviet Union. They would make hit-and-run attacks, striking Portuguese targets before quickly retreating into backwater areas. By 1967, Frelimo had taken control of around one-fifth of the country, mostly in the north. In an attempt to win the hearts and minds of the populace, Portugal invested heavily in its development programmes, building schools, hospitals, roads and other infrastructure projects, mostly in the south of the country. One such project was the Cahora Bassa Dam, whose construction began in 1969. The dam was defended by over 3,000 Portuguese troops and one million landmines. Frelimo's attempt to halt construction of the dam through their guerrilla tactics was unsuccessful. On February 3, 1969, the Frelimo leader Eduardo Mondlane was assassinated. He was sent a bomb hidden in a book. When the book was opened, the bomb detonated, killing him instantly. Which is kind of an ironic way to go if you're an academic being killed by a book. Anyway. That's going to look quite spectacular. I mean, I'm not saying I would have wanted to see it, but kind of, I don't know, but the, I, I've not, not heard of a book bombing before. Yeah, well, you can put a bomb in pretty much everything, and it would have been one of those big, heavy academic textbooks, which cost like $1,000 in an American student library. So, uh, yeah, it's probably pretty big. So anyway, after Monblane's death, Fredimo's executive committee was expected to appoint his deputy, the Reverend Uriah Simango, as his successor. However, they went for the unusual option of appointing a triumvirate consisting of Simango, the head of Frelimo's armed forces, Samora Michel, and the poet, Marcelino dos Santos. Unhappy with the situation, Simango released a pamphlet entitled Gloomy Situation in Frelimo, and he was expelled. In 1970, Frelimo held an election that saw Michel elected president with dos Santos as his deputy. Now, at this point, it's worth taking a look at the life of Samora Michel, because he pretty much embodies everything that this story is about. He was born into a farming family in 1933, and his parents were forced to work by the Portuguese under the Chibale system and compelled to grow cotton rather than food crops. They were paid less for their crop than the white farmers were. After leaving home, Michel moved to Lorenzo Marquez and started to train as a nurse at the Miguel Bombarda Hospital. He was being supported by his brother, but after his brother died in a mining accident, he could no longer afford to continue his studies. Eventually, he got a job as a hospital aide and earned enough to continue his studies at night school. Whilst at the hospital, he protested at the fact that the black staff were paid less than the whites. Shortly afterwards, he was informed that he was being watched by the PIDE, the Portuguese secret police. With that information, he escaped to Dar es Salaam, where he joined up with Frelimo. After training as a guerrilla fighter in Algeria, he returned to Dar es Salaam and was put in charge of a training camp. 
From there, he rose up the ranks and became the head of Frelimo's army in October 1966, following the death of its previous leader, Felipe Samuel Magaya, who was killed by a serving Frelimo soldier who was in the pay of the Portuguese. In 1970, the Portuguese launched their largest counterinsurgency operation to date, Operation Gordian Knot. Under the command of Brigadier General Calza de Arriaga, they deployed 35,000 soldiers in an attempt to retake control of the north of Mozambique. They employed helicopter gunships in search and destroy missions in an operation that echoed what the Americans were doing in Vietnam. Although the Portuguese destroyed 200 bases, they were unsuccessful in destroying Frelimo. On the 25th of April 1975, a military coup in Portugal spelled the end of the Portuguese colonies. The authoritarian Estado Novo regime was toppled, and people celebrated by giving carnations to the soldiers who took part in it, including placing the flowers in the muzzles of their guns. Portugal's colonial wars, which were consuming 40% of the country's budget, were brought to a close. Thus, Mozambique officially became independent on June 25, 1975, the 13th anniversary of the founding of Frelimo. Mozambique's independence heralded some big changes. Obviously, the Jabalo system ended, and Frelimo started to build schools and hospitals. The name of the capital was changed to Maputo, a name it retains to this day. It takes its name from the nearby Maputo River, a strategic location in the War of Independence. Mozambique also adopted its own flag, ditching the Portuguese one. At first, it used the flag of Frelimo. It's a pretty good design, with a red triangle in the hoist and green, black and yellow horizontal stripes with white fimbriations. However, this flag was quickly replaced with something similar. Although not quite the flag Mozambique uses today, all the elements are there. It included an open book to represent education, a hoe for agriculture, and of course, to represent the armed struggle, an AK-47 with a bayonet attached. Although guns are found on the flags of other countries, for example, Guatemala, Haiti and Bolivia, Mozambique is the only country to feature something so modern. And that's one of the reasons I find flags very interesting, because they tell you something about the country they represent. So Mozambique's armed struggle was in the age of the AK-47, hence why the AK-47 is on their flag. It's a classic design as well. It, it's one of the most gunny guns you can find. So <laughs> It definitely is. It's sort of like when you think gun, you think AK-47, certainly. So Samora Michel became Mozambique's first president. Under their Marxist-Leninist doctrine, the country was set up as a one-party state. Fearing reprisals, pretty much all of Mozambique's white Portuguese population, some 300,000 people, fled to Europe. Michel approached US President Gerald Ford to try and strike a trade deal, but he was too busy drinking beer and eating nachos whilst watching football. And he was rebuffed. With no one else to turn to, Michel turned to the communist world for help, receiving military advisers from the Soviet Union and Cuba. Being a supporter of African liberation, Michel allowed fighters from Robert Mugabe's Zimbabwe National Liberation Army into Mozambique. That put the racist government of South Africa in a, shall we say, awkward position. They quickly went from being surrounded by allies to having a Marxist-Leninist country on its border, a country that was helping to bring down the white minority regime of Ian Smith in neighbouring Rhodesia. To counteract what the South Africans saw as a threat, the South African government trained and financed a group called the Mozambican National Resistance. This group was effective in using Frelimo's guerrilla tactics against them. 
Operating out of camps, they increased their number by abducting people and forcing them to fight, including children. And it's estimated that one third of their soldiers were children. They attacked civilian infrastructure, destroyed schools and hospitals, and cut off the train lines to Mozambique's ports. Once embarked by Gand independence in 1980, Mozambique was in economic ruin. On top of that, many of the landlocked countries in southern Africa, including Zimbabwe and Malawi, were forced to use the ports of South Africa. This was costly, took longer, and it diverted much needed revenue away from Mozambique. In 1984, the South African and Mozambican governments signed the Nkomati Accords. Following the ceremony that was attended by P.W. Boffer and Samora Michelle, Mozambique agreed to stop allowing ANC fighters to use their territory in return for South Africa to stop training and funding the Mozambican National Resistance, which at this point had renamed itself RINAMO. South Africa reneged on the treaty pretty much immediately and the funding of RINAMO continued. In 1986, the region was thrown into further turmoil when Samora Michel died in a plane crash. He had attended a summit in Mambala, Zambia on October 19, 1986. Against the advice of his own security services, he wanted to return to Maputo as soon as possible, so he flew at night rather than wait until morning. The plane crashed into a hillside at Embazini, just inside South Africa. An investigation by the South African government attributed the crash to pilot error, and their conclusion was accepted by the International Civil Aviation Organization. However, Mozambique and the Soviet Union rejected these findings, and they submitted their own report that the plane was following a decoy navigation beacon specifically set up by the South Africans to lure the plane onto the hillside. However, that's just speculation, but it's still a very contentious issue, especially in Mozambique. When Michelle died, Joaquim Chisano became the president of Mozambique. By the late 80s, both sides lost their major backers. Apartheid was crumbling in South Africa, and the Soviet Union was in a state of irreversible decline. Frelimo and Renamo started talking to each other. In July 1989, a new constitution was drafted, one that allowed for multi-party elections. The constitution was adopted in November 1990. Negotiations between the two sides resulted in the signing of the Rome General Peace Accords on October 4, 1992, four days before Home of the Heretic first aired, bringing to an end a conflict that had killed an estimated one million people. UN peacekeepers were subsequently deployed. The treaty meant no prosecutions or punishments for Renamo members, and it granted them 50% of the positions in the Mozambican army. The accords paved the way for elections, with Joaquim Chisano being elected president in 1994, beating Renamo's Alfonso da Clama. In 1995, Mozambique did something rather odd. It joined the British Commonwealth of Nations. Most Commonwealth countries were formerly part of the British Empire. But of course, Mozambique was previously under Portuguese control. So why did it join the Commonwealth of all things? Well, it has more ties with it than you might think. During the apartheid era in South Africa and Ian Smith's rule of Rhodesia, the Commonwealth imposed sanctions on those countries, and Mozambique supported those sanctions, as it obviously would. Also, pretty much all of the countries that border Mozambique are members, with the exception of Zimbabwe, which is currently suspended. The idea was that membership of the Commonwealth would forge closer links with those countries. And finally, the British Commonwealth was not Portuguese. 
what better way to say we're not Portuguese anymore than join an organisation that is most definitely not Portuguese? So, if Commonwealth memberships seem strange, Chisano had a rather unorthodox way of attempting to bring prosperity to Mozambique. Transcendental meditation. This is true. All police and military personnel were ordered to meditate for 20 minutes a day, and tens of thousands of people were put on courses that talked the practice of yogic flying. Have you ever seen yogic flying? No, I, I know it was one of the uh, one of the policies of the Natural Law Party, who uh, That's right. I, be- I believe were uh, backed by George Harrison in some of the uh, early 90s British general elections. But I, I must admit, I've never seen it done. I've seen video of it. It's very weird. What people do is they uh, sit in what I believe is called the lotus position, you know, that, that yoga position where you sat on the floor with, with, with your legs folded. You enter some sort of some sort of Zen like state, some sort of trance. And then suddenly you you, you, you push up with your knees and, 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 and you jump up and you keep doing that until you end up at the other end of the room. And it's supposed to be some sort of thrill, I guess. That's I mean, I, I don't want to cock a snook at this but it, it does sound a little bit like bouncing it does yeah it, it, it's what it looks like as well but I, I see people do it and just think even if you're on like a very springy floor that cannot be good for your knees Ooh, no no rather them than me i think mm-hmm. so despite all of this chisano was re-elected president in 1999 and under his tenure the economy grew and 15 percent of the population was lifted out of extreme poverty He declined to run again in 2004, despite being eligible, making him very unusual for an African leader. In 2007, he was awarded the first annual prize for achievement in African leadership by the Mo Ibrahim Foundation, a prize which came with a fancy award ceremony and a check for $5 million. He probably didn't spend the money on a vibrating chair, but he skipped the award because he was working on a UN mission in South Sudan at the time. As for Mozambique, a cyclone in 2000 caused widespread flooding, really setting the country back. But in 2013, not that long ago, Rodano took to arms once again, but on a much smaller scale. Unhappy with the amount of representation they had in Parliament, they launched an attack on a police station in Muxunge, killing 36. They signed a ceasefire with the government in 2014, which lasted until 2015, when Renamo ambushed and killed 35 soldiers. Small-scale attacks have taken place ever since, until Mozambican President Felipe Nayusi and Renamo leader Osofu Momade signed a peace agreement. However, a splinter faction of Renamo, calling itself the Renamo Military Hunter, did not accept the treaty. To this day, their members are still at large. But... The current leaders of Frelimo and Renamo have vowed to dedicate themselves to peace. At the signing ceremony at Renamo's remote base in the Gorongosa Mountains, the two men shook hands and embraced. During a second ceremony in Maputo's Peace Square, Mamade vowed to maintain peace and national reconciliation. So that's nice. Oh, a happy ending. To, well, I mean, uh, the possibility of an eventual happy ending on that one, then. Hmm. So that left me with the challenge of trying to find the mention of Mozang Beak in The Simpsons, and I thought there's uh, there's absolutely no way that this is uh, this is a goer. I was wrong. I found one. 
it is mentioned, although mercifully on the evidence of Simpson Safari not shown, in season 16, episode 21, The Father, the Son, and the Holy Guest Star, which is not a good episode. Don't watch that episode. In it, Homer threatens to convert to Catholicism and says the following. Face it, Marge, Catholics rule. We got Boston, South America, the good part of Ireland, and we're making serious inroads in Mozambique, baby. <laughs> nice. Also worth noting that when we open wide for some soccer in season nine, episode six, The Cartridge Family, Portugal are one of the two teams playing that fateful day, Mexico being the other. And of course, one of the players, whether it's for Portugal or Mexico, they don't say, but one of the players is called Ariaga, which was the name of the general who was in charge of the Portuguese operation, Gordian Knot. So maybe it's named after him. Excellent. Was it Ariaga or Ariaga 2? <laughs> I'm assuming it was the original Ariaga, Ariaga the first. Original and best. So with all that said, don't forget you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. You can follow us on Twitter at underscore retrospecticus. Email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org and check out our 90s playlist on Spotify. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review any way you possibly can. Thanks for listening. Bye.